The Exploratorium recently unveiled an expansive new collection of exhibits about thinking and feeling called MIND. As part of our opening festivities, we invited a few distinguished speakers to address our museum audience on a variety of related topics, from animal minds to human creativity. This podcast series features edited versions of three of these talks. When do you feel creative? Where does creativity come from? Dr. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi has spent his professional career exploring questions like these. A leading authority on positive psychology and flow, Dr. Csikszentmihalyi is a distinguished professor of psychology and management at Claremont Graduate University. He is the author of a number of books, including Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience and Creativity, Flow in the Psychology of Discovery and Invention. He is a member of the American Academy of Education, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the National Academy of Leisure Sciences. Dr. Csikszentmihalyi's talk, The Creative Person and the Creative Context, took place on February 9th, 2008, at the Exploratorium. When I talk about creativity, I feel a little bit like Scrooge telling people that there is no Santa Claus, because in some ways, most audiences hope to hear some kind of a recipe or a silver bullet advice as to how their children or themselves could be more creative. And uh, they hold very strongly to the notion that with a little effort and a little good luck, their children will also be creative and they encourage them in that direction. And while this is important, um, I'm talking about creativity in a somewhat different sense. Creativity that changes history, that changes the culture in which we live. Creativity that makes us see the world in new ways or understand the world in new ways or uh, allows us to appreciate things in new ways. In other words, in what um, we could call the big C public creativity rather than the small C creativity, which is what most people think that they, by achieving small, the small C creativity, which is in fact accessible to everybody, that that will lead eventually to big C creativity that will make a big difference and uh, bring them fame and fortune. But actually, um, there's no very good indication that these two ways of thinking about creativity are really related. In fact, if you look at the lives of some of the biggest sea people in history, they didn't show any of the traits that we associate with creativity. If you take somebody like Leonardo da Vinci, who is considered one of the greatest inventors, artists uh, of the Renaissance, in everyday life, he was about uh, the most boring person you can imagine. You wouldn't want to stop near him at a cocktail party if you had that opportunity. I mean, all the documents and and uh, his own writings and so forth show a person who was so focused on whatever interested him at that time that anything else was completely uninteresting to him. Johann Sebastian Bach, one of the greatest musicians who lived, he uh, 
was creative in certain, some ways. He had 17 children and, and uh, wrote enormous number of great music. But again, he had an, a very kind of rigid schedule, very uh, focused in on what he was doing. And during that period, he was essentially unaccessible to people uh, either emotionally or intellectually. So the um, big C creativity is in many ways a different animal from what we think of as the flamboyant, uh, brilliant people that uh, we associate usually with creativity. Now, what is that makes for this big C creative people I interviewed 91 really exceptional people in the book on creativity. And one of the things I wanted to, to see is, okay, so the system needs to be in place, but what about the individual? What, what is special about individuals who become creative? Joe Gall is a cell biologist, a geneticist, and he describes how it is to look at the cells moving on, under his electron microscope. He uh, describes it as something so beautiful that he can sit in front of for three, four hours, just looking at the material, analyzing it. You know, it can be very disconcerting for someone who don't care for little cells moving. Uh, <laughs> that, you know, that this is something to require and that he would pay all this attention to. And here we are back a little bit to what I said at the beginning about Leonardo da Vinci. You know, Joe Gall is not a particularly brilliant, sparkling personality. He, he goes to work, he does his job, he goes home, and he seems like maybe no different in a way, if you look at him, from a public accountant doing uh, tax results, you know, I mean, just, uh, but he's, he is enthralled, excited by what he's doing, because he knows what he's doing. He, he's working with something that hasn't been done before, seeing processes that nobody else has seen, and he knows that because he is thoroughly master of his domain, and that kind of losing yourself in work that is meaningful to you, that has a, a purpose, is, is one of the major things that is true of creative people. I have called this the flow experience because people describe it as being carried by, by a river, you know, like you are not doing any effort, it's, it's, it goes by itself even though it requires a lot of work, uh, mental work, let's say, or physical work, but it feels effortless because you are so a part of it that it doesn't feel like you're struggling. You're just going with it, but it's a very, it requires a, an enormous amount of skill and knowledge. So that's true of all, all of the people that uh, I studied. But the other thing that struck me is that contrary to what people try to do with creativity, namely say, okay, 
creative people are divergent thinkers. That is, they think outside the box, and they are childish and naive, which uh, has been observed since, at least since uh, Goethe in Germany said that naivete is the most important thing for a creative person. It's true, that's very important to be childish, naive, divergent. But what you find among creative people is that they can also be incredibly convergent, namely logical and uh, smart. And what, what's characteristic of, of them is that they can move from one to the other very at ease. We interviewed Linus Pauling when he was 89 years old. At that point, he had two Nobel Prizes, right? He was running five major experiments in the lab at age 89. When I asked him what is it about himself that he would like to change, he says, I would like to be a little less lazy. You know, 89 years, two Nobel Prizes, five projects in the lab. But he, he thought he was lazy. Now, at the same time, if you see the video of him talking, his eyes open like a, a kid, you know, like a seven-year-old, bouncing up and down, explaining what he was working on, you know. And, and he looked childish, with great energy, but the reason he could do that is that he did not let himself be boxed in in a particular routine of how much he should sleep, when, how, when he should eat. He slept as much as he wanted, more than what you read uh, is good for your brain or whatever, because he felt like. He ate differently from others. He had big meals in the middle of the day, uh, sometimes in the afternoon, etc. So. All of these people say, you know, I, I feel guilty almost because I'm not doing the things the way other people do. And yet that kind of uh, control over your time and your activity is essential. You have to be able to say, no, I don't care, now I will sleep or have a nap or eat something. I'm wondering whether you've done any work on teaching people how to enter the creative flow and equally teaching people how to judge, people in the field, how to judge ideas and if there's any studies around that. Well, flow is something which uh, most people can experience, not just creative people. About 90% of people recognize that experience is something they had. Um, I think flow is necessary for creativity but it's not sufficient. In other words, you can have flow playing with your pets or talking to your children or whatever. So um, to teach people to have flow in a particular domain like physics or mathematics, you would have to first expose them to that field or that domain enough for them to become interested in it. Because all of these people who are creative about one domain and the other are started with curiosity. I mean, you know, they, they became fascinated by some aspect of reality. You know. 
And once you do that, that flow is, is going to come. You know, uh, one of the people I interviewed was E.O. Wilson, the great naturalist, and he was living in a hard scrabble farm in Georgia where at five years of age, there was an infestation of red ants, that fire ants that came through and ate everything. And he uh, thought, wow, you know, this is fantastic, you know, who are these things? You know, what are they doing? And started studying ants. And now he's in his 70s and he just completed a four volume of some 7,000 species of ants, which he illustrated each one himself. He spent the last 20 years of his life uh, illustrating ants, you know. But it all started by a personal experience which uh, produced enough curiosity to last him a lifetime. The you know? Linus Pauling, he uh, became interested in chemistry only in high school when his teacher, high school chemistry teacher, asked him to clean up uh, the equipment after it's been used by the students and put it in order and then set it up next day. And he didn't get any money for it, but he felt that, wow, you know, I am now a a little chemist. Uh, I am now trusted to do, uh, prepare this thing like a professional. And that, out of these 91 people, almost no person say that they learn anything in school. (laughs) They learn from individual teachers who approached them outside of class, before, after, and treated them kind of like somebody who knew something, you know, and and that is the kind of origin of most of these people's curiosity is being exposed to some real either natural things like the ants coming through or the teachers asking them to act like a, a pro, you know, and, and then come. But it won't work with everybody, but uh, all the creative people kind of start like that. Yeah. Hi. I had a question about uh, your definitions of big C and little C. Yeah. And I was wondering, in the beginning, you talked a lot about how there was a really large difference between the creativity in the private sphere versus like the public creativity. And um, as I was listening to the rest of your lecture, it seemed as though the creativity was the same, because creativity in the sense of passion and fascination with a specific um, object or study. So I was wondering if the creativity is, in, in a sense, the very same kind of creativity and level of creativity, but the only difference being that one is done privately and is not recognized publicly whereas Big C is. Yeah, um, that would be one solution. I, I'm not sure it's this, because there are, I met too many people who were passionate and completely involved in something which turned out to be um, nothing. I mean, for instance, one of the periods when I was uh, a young professor of psychology in Chicago, I was asked by... Um, guy called Alan, the first name now I'm blocking out. He was the UFO expert for the Air Force, and he had thousands and thousands of reports of flying saucers encountered. He's the guy who coined the expression 
of close encounters of the third kind, which is when you actually meet the space people. So he asked me as a psychologist to interview some of these people just as part of routine debriefing or what. And these people were absolutely sure that they had seen something unique. They had blueprints of the craft where they were visit, uh, they had visited. Uh, the blueprints often turned out to be uh, blueprints for washing machines and others. But they, they believed this, this was the real thing. And you know, they were passionately convinced that this was a big breakthrough. Or I worked as a graduate student for a publisher, and you wouldn't believe the kind of books that, were, that people turned in, you know, <laughs> claiming that they had discovered after long research that Ulysses actually, in the Odyssey, he's describing the coast of Florida. So there is an awful lot of this going on. And how do you judge? How do you make a, a decision whether this is creative or a kind of obsessive uh, delusion? And uh, generally, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if I were to judge Einstein, I would think he's crazy, right? First of all, I don't understand what he's talking about. And then when I tr he tries to, if he tried to explain it to me, I would say, oh, get out of here. So, I mean, I, I just don't know that, that field. I mean, I, I don't, uh, you couldn't trust me to evaluate Einstein, but I, I kind of begin to trust when most physicists around the world say that, yeah, he, you know, he had something. But you may be still right that, that, as I say, the kind of passion is necessary. But it's not sufficient, and and I think that makes a big, I think a big difference. So I have the okay. last question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in trying to understand all this, I, I know, and I'm trying to phrase this in a way that will be meaningful to a, a wider range of people. Um, are there any ways that cor that in which the flow state? correlates with any kind of neuroanatomy or variations in neuroanatomy. I'm just getting at the notion of, of uh, say, the ratio between gray matter, white matter, or something like that. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Einstein's brain is being uh, shipped around all over the place, and people are looking at it, and they don't see anything. But uh, Well, they see a little bit, but maybe it's just mold by now. I, I don't know. But, Anyway, there is obviously everything we do has a mental or a brain pattern that facilitates its happening, but I'm not sure that that will give us a better understanding than others. Uh, but there is, okay, I take that back because I, I just published an article in the Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience with two neuroscientists from Europe at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. And what we did there was to put people who were good piano players, professionals, in an fMRI machine with a two-octave plastic uh, keyboard because you can't put metal in the fMRI. But, so they are lying there with the cylinders <laughs> rotating around <laughs> around. And they are projected a simple melody, and they play, play that. And then they are told, now improvise on this. And uh, 
they are all very good, so they improvise it, and then 20 seconds, and then they're told, all right, now replay the improvisation, okay? So you can compare what's happening in the brain when they're improvising with how they play the same music note by note, uh, but not improvising anymore, just remembering it, okay? And you find brain areas that are significantly different. You know, for instance, the um, dorsolateral anterior cortex, which um, uh, lights up like crazy. And that part of the brain has been found active in the past when a person has to make judgments without enough information. Without, uh, now, that, that's a nice piece of the puzzle, because imagine if students in school were taught that, right? To guess rather than, to improvise rather than repeat. You know, and so that, that I think begins to shift some of the discourse in a direction where you can begin to use this thing, maybe, you know? Because obviously all kinds of other parts of the brain are active, the musical memory part here, um, um, the, the, every finger has a different uh, location in the brain, so that if you move this finger, that part of the brain goes on. But all of those were, were the same, because you play the same fingers, the same, uh, you use the same, right? So the only one, well, no, there were two others, but not as strongly, but the one that really lit up is this dorsolateral anterior cortex, and, and, and that could be fun, but there are very few things you can get people to experience flow in when they are in an fMRI machine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So thank you, okay. Mihai, and thank you. thank you. This podcast was produced at the Exploratorium, the Museum of Science, Art, and Human Perception in San Francisco. I'm Dia Felix, your host and producer. Music is by Wayne Grimm. These lectures were supported in part by a grant from the National Science Foundation. To learn more about the Exploratorium's Mind Collection and to access video streams of this lecture and others in their entirety, please visit www.exploratorium.edu mind. <laughs>